Joshua chapter 1. The only constant is change. Now that saying was attributed to a a philosopher who lived in Ephesus 500 years before Christ by the name of Heraclitus. Now whether he actually said that in that way or, or it was attributed later to him, we're not sure. But what is known about him is that he developed an entire philosophical system around the idea that change is an ever-present part of our human existence. It affects everything about us. Um, we have changing circumstances, changing events, uh, changing jobs, changing social norms. I'm struggling with a bit of change here this morning. I, I have a brand new Bible with me and I had to buy it because I needed a large print. And I'm still dealing with that. Whenever I was in the pulpit, I could never glance down and catch the right verse. So I had to go large print, and my notes had to go up a point or two. That's change, and it's hard to deal with. It's in the big things in our lives, elections and politics and world events. These are big changes. Uh, all the way down to the small things in our lives. Uh, the price of gasoline changes constantly. The, the products that we purchase, the, the packaging is always changing. You know, Robin does most of the shopping in our home, and when she comes home, she's often frustrated that she can't find the product that she's been buying for the last 10 years because they changed the packaging again, and you can't find it on the shelf. But what I've observed about most of us is that though change is an ever-present part of our existence, we, we really don't like it. it. It really bothers us for the most part. And there's an entire self-help industry devoted to helping us deal with change. And these are the ways we are told to deal with it sometimes. Or we, we just ignore it. Just get into my happy place and we just ignore it. Or, or maybe it's that we just have to roll with it. Just ebb and flow with what happens. And that's the way to get through change. Uh, my favorite method is to control it. I've decided that I can control change. And I do my best to make sure that it doesn't affect me or my loved ones. Um, the best story that I have where God has showed me that I can't control change is in vehicles. You know, I'm the kind of guy that always drives around with a toolbox. It could be a brand new car off the lot, and I need a toolbox and flares and jacks and a, and a, and a tube kit for the car, uh, for the tires, and I need all that stuff there because if there's any change in the vehicle, I want to be able to control the change. Well, when we were first married, we had a 1986 Ford Tempo, a piece of American engineering there. And Robin and I were going down to Ocean City, New Jersey, and we drove the back roads because at that time I disliked interstates, and we were driving the back roads on the way down to Ocean City, and all of a sudden I heard this whap, 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 and the dashboard lights came on. So we pulled over into a garage and parked, and I flipped the hood up, and it was the alternator belt that had gone. But no problem. I can control change. Who else has spare alternator belts in their trunk? <laughs> but I did. And in 15 minutes, John will appreciate the 15 minutes belts ba off, back on. We're ready to go. We're down the road. And I'm very proud of myself that change has not been able to affect my day. But God had other ideas. For a few minutes later, as we come off the Jersey Turnpike to the Ocean City exit, we get into the toll booths, and the car shuts off in the toll booths. <laughs> well, Robin had to get in and steer, and I had to push. Push it through the toll booths, off to the side. 
but no, for no problem, I have AAA. I'm prepared. Well, it turned out it was a fuel pump and a tow, and $250 later, the car was returned to me. And it was God's way of saying, you don't control change. And as Christians, we have a special love-hate relationship with change, don't we? Because there's a tension in our lives. We serve a God, a loving Heavenly Father, the Creator of all things, who not only ordains and controls what we do, but He has placed change in our lives for our very good. And so we ask these questions, God, why? Why did you allow this? Why did you allow that? Can't you change this, God? And then there's that tension. God loves me, but he allows this change into my life. And along with change comes the emotions, right? Fear, anxiety, uh, confusion. All these things are generated by change. And those tensions of those two truths as God is loving Father and God is creator, sustainer of all things frustrate us. Well, Scripture does help us deal with what is change and how do we deal with a life of change. And it's not rolling with it, it's not ignoring it, it's not controlling it. I think what we're going to find from Joshua chapter 1 is God has something far better for all of us. Follow with me or click through your app to Joshua chapter 1. I'm going to read the first nine verses. It says, after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I'm giving them to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised Moses. From the wilderness in this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea towards the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or the left hand, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that's written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous? Do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Now we need to, we need to place ourselves in redemptive history here, or as in Kingdom Kids we call it, God's big story. Where are we in God's big story? Well, you'll remember that the people of Israel were slaves in Egypt, and God raised up Moses, the great prophet, to lead his people out of slavery, out of Egypt, through the Red Sea to Mount Sinai. And you'll remember there that God gave his people his covenant and his law. And this taught his people how to live with him in holiness. It showed his people that he would dwell in their midst through the use of the tabernacle. And then you'll remember God gave them the promises of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Promises that included rest. Rest in a land for their own possession. The promised land. The land of Canaan. And then God led them from Sinai to the promised land. But you'll remember that the people rebelled against God and they they rejected his promise because they were scared of the inhabitants. And then God punished the people. And he said, you'll wander in the wilderness for 40 years till this rebellious generation dies off. And so for the last 40 years, under Moses' leadership, 
They've been wandering as a peaceful, nomadic people, largely peaceful, through the wilderness. God has brought this generation now back, this new generation, back to the borders of the promised land. But the people are exhibiting on a national and a personal level a great deal of change. If we think about it, they've been a largely peaceful nomadic people. A few spats here and there with a few um, countries, but not much war so far. They have been, they've only ever known Moses, one leader, one spokesman for God, who would speak the voice of God, and now Moses is dead. And you'll see, notice that in verse 1, it, the, 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 the writer kind of sets this up. He refers to Moses as, as the servant of the Lord and Joshua, Moses' assistant. We, ha, we kind of have number two in place leading us. There's been a change of power. There's been a change in the people's lives. They're now going to be gearing up for war. Their sons and their daughters and their uncles are, are training. They're, they're going to be set apart from the people. They're going to have years and years of military service. They're going to enter a strange and foreboding land, a land filled with walled cities. They're asking themselves, where will, where will we live? How will we eat when the army is separated from us? How will we be protected? They're probably asking themselves, will, will, will God really keep his promises? Will this Joshua really be able to lead the way Moses did? And so there's all this change in their lives. They probably did doubt Joshua's leadership just a little bit. Now, what had happened is that Moses had laid hands on Joshua, God's leading, had anointed him before the people. He had declared to the people that Joshua will lead you. Joshua will will follow uh, after me in my footsteps. The people knew and understood that. And the last chapter of Deuteronomy says that they were obeying Joshua. But I think they still had some doubt. There was some change of leadership here that they were concerned about. And I think we get that if you fast forward three chapters before they cross the Jordan, the Lord will say to Joshua, don't worry, today I will exalt you in the eyes of the people just the way I did Moses. I think there, were, there needed to be some exalting before the people for them to really latch on to Joshua's leadership. But there's change. And so what we've come to in the first chapter here is Joshua's commission. If you have headings at the top of your Bible, mine says God commissions Joshua. He gives him his instructions. In the midst of this change, Joshua, I'm going to sit you down, I'm going to speak to you face to face, and I'm going to tell you how you're going to deal with it, how you're going to handle it. And the first thing he says is go. Go. Build my kingdom. That's verse 2. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, you and the people, into the land that I'm giving you to the people of Israel. Go, he says. Now I would have thought God would have maybe given Joshua a little pep talk first. Maybe he would have given them some other words of encouragement. Maybe he would have acknowledged what Joshua is experiencing. Maybe he would have given him some tactics about exactly what to do and how to organize the troops or something else. But no, it's, it's pretty short and to the point. God says, Moses, my servant is dead. Go. God doesn't skip a beat. Because what he wants to tell Joshua is that, Joshua, your work is built on my eternal purposes. The work that you're to be focused on, Joshua, in the midst of change, in the midst of anxiety, in the midst of fear, in the midst of all of this, the work you're to focus on, Joshua, 
is, are my eternal purposes. And that's to build the kingdom. Now, for the nation of Israel, that was a physical theocracy here on earth. God had given them a physical land. And they were to go in. They were to be instruments of judgment and judge the, 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 the sinful peoples of that land. They were to be instruments of grace. They were to build a theocracy, a, a, a nation where God was leading them directly on earth. That was God's purpose. And that's what God rehearsed here in the next couple verses. From 2 down to 5, he goes over the borders of Israel. And he says again and again, he says in the end of verse 3, just as I promised Moses, again and again, these are my promises. These are my eternal purposes, Joshua. And you can be assured of your work when you base your work on my purposes. Because he says, I, the Lord your God, don't change. That's what's significant about what he's telling Joshua here. He said, "My per- yes, Moses is dead. Yes, you're the new l- ruler. Yes, there's all this change that Israel is going to experience. But what has not changed is me. The writer to the book of James says that God does not change like the shifting shadows. And so God's purposes don't change. Then he goes on to tell Joshua, by the way, when you go and you build my kingdom, you will succeed. That's verse 5. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. God says when you go with my purposes in view, whatever else happens, you'll succeed. And the reason you'll succeed is because you're building your work, Joshua, on my unfailing promises. My purposes don't change. My promises don't change. These were the purposes that God had. He he says that from Abraham. He says over and over again to the people, I'm the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. These were the promises to Abraham and Isaac to Jacob. So now as you change and you go into your new life and you go into the next phase of Israel's existence under a new leader, you can be assured of success because Joshua, these are my eternal purposes. And they rest on my promises. And that's how you can go forward. But then even more than that, he says, you are to go, Joshua. You're to build my kingdom. You're going to succeed. But you don't have to go in fear. You don't have to go in anxiety. You don't have to let these, these changes concern you. Because you can be strong and courageous in the midst of all this change. And what we're going to see is that God is saying, your work, Joshua, is built on my character. And that requires faith. Your work's built on my my eternal purposes. Your work's built on my eternal promises that are unfailing. And your work is built on my character. Notice what he says three times. Be strong and courageous, verse 6. Verse 7, be strong and courageous. Verse 9, have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Now, if I was Joshua, there would be a little bit in me that says, God, who are you kidding? You're not living down here on planet Earth. You're way up there. You're you're reigning supreme in the throne room of heaven, but I have these people to deal with. I have animals to take care of. I have a Jordan to cross. I, I have people that are concerned about my leadership. I, I have military plans to form. I got cities that are walled up that I have to figure out how to take down. I, I'm the number two guy, and I have to figure out how to fill Moses' shoes. And you've already told me that there's no prophet that'll ever arise like Moses, at least not me. 
I think that's a little bit of a just response for Joshua. And what does God say? No, be strong and courageous. Well, that's easy for you to say, God, how? Because I'm scared. God gives the answer to this idea in verse 9. He defines what strength and courage are with a negative. Look at verse 9. He says, be strong and courageous. The negative is, do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. And that idea, the word frightened there, that, that the word is, if we, the best way to think about this is to be in all of. To be in all of. When I'm frightened, I'm in all of whatever scares me. Whatever is concerning me, whatever is frightening me, has, has captivated my entire vision. And that's what I see. And it's affecting how I'm living. Then he says, don't be dismayed. I think we, the best way to think about that is don't be crushed by it. God is not saying that you're to be a non-emotional robot. God is not saying suppress the emotions that I've given you as a human being. He said, yes, you may feel fear. Yes, you may feel some anxiety. Yes, you, you may feel some trouble. You may feel some confusion. You may feel like you don't have all the answers. But Joshua, don't stand in all of these circumstances and don't allow them to crush you. That's the idea of being strong and courageous. Now, we've just come through vet, Veterans Day. And I think if you ask anybody who's been a veteran, they probably have a different definition of courage than those of us who haven't had to serve might have. This meme is floating around quite a bit. You can see it's the, a picture of men coming off the landing craft at the Normandy invasions. And it says, courage. Bravery, do, bravery doesn't mean you're not scared. It means you go anyway. Every single soldier who's served has been scared at one time. They'll tell you that not to fear fear, fear is kind of foolish. But what we can be proud of our soldiers who have served, not only in this war, but also in peacetime, is that they go anyway. They don't, the fear does not captivate them and crush them. They go anyway. And so what God is telling Joshua in these three commands, be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous, is you can be strong and courageous as you go about my work under my promises and as you, as you fall back on my character. Now, what does he say about being strong and courageous? Why can we be strong and courageous? Three times Joshua said, or God says to Joshua, you can be strong and courageous when you go about my work. Number one, when you go understanding my promises. We've already seen that. But in verse 6, he says, you'll cause this people to the inherit the land that I swore to give their fathers. God has bound himself to his promises by his oath. He's sworn an oath that can never change. So we can be strong and courageous as we look at our circumstances. Joshua can be strong and courageous because God has given his oath to his promises. Number two, he said you can be strong and courageous when you go walking in my law. God devotes the largest portion of his commission here to Joshua to his written word. You know, there's never been a time after this that God has ever left his people without his written word. 
Joshua had the first two chapters of our Old Testament by now. Moses had been writing for 40 years. He had Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, most of Deuteronomy written down for him. God refers to his word. Later in Joshua, you can see places that's referred to the written word, the written law. Joshua had God's written word, and he had lived through much of that writing. Through that time period, he had seen God work. He had his law. And God says, you can be strong and courageous only when you go walking in my law. When you go walking, what does that mean? We'll look down through verse 7. Be strong and courageous. Sorry, verse 7. To do all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do all of it. We don't get to pick and choose. Joshua, don't pick and choose which part of my law you follow. You need to follow all of my law. He said, don't turn to it from the right hand or to the left hand. Don't deviate at all. My law is your guide. My My law will keep you walking in the straight and narrow. Then he goes on again to say, you shall meditate on it day and night so that you can do all that is written in it. Meditate on it day and night. Joshua, this is not just something that's a passing craze. This is not something that you just read once and put back on the shelf. Joshua, you're to absorb yourself in my law so that it's ever present on your mind. So that as you go about my promises, my purposes, you have my law as a guide. And God makes a promise. You'll have good success. The end of verse 7, that you may have good success. The end of verse 8, that you may have good success. Walk in my law and you'll have good success. Now, is this the first prosperity gospel? That's what it kind of sounds like. You do the right thing. Maybe it sounds like legalism a little bit. You do all these things. You put these checks in your column. You read my law. You do it. And everything's going to be good. And that's not what he says. I think a better translation, and you may actually have this in your footnote. My Bible has it in a footnote. Under good success, success it says, or that you may act wisely. And I think that's a better way for us to consider this command. Joshua, you can be strong and courageous in the midst of change when you follow my word, because my word will help you act wisely. And that's what Joshua needed. The written word did not tell Joshua everything he needed to know to lead a people. It didn't say you should camp here or thou shalt not camp there. It didn't say thou shalt use this many soldiers or not that many soldiers. But what God's word does for Joshua and does for us today is give us all the principles needed to control every part of our life. God's word sits above Every other element of knowledge, it sits above philosophy, it sits above science, it sits above ethics, it sits above everything. And it's the controlling force in our lives. And when we filter everything through God's word, it gives us the principles to live by that when we understand those principles, we can act wisely. It doesn't mean we don't struggle with a question. It doesn't mean it doesn't say... You shall marry this person. You shall marry that person. You shall date that person. You shall not date that person. But there are certainly many principles within God's word that allows us to make wise choices. Third, he says to Joshua, you can go in strength and courage in the security of my presence. Over and over again, God assures Joshua, my presence is with you. First of all, he had the tabernacle, the visible representation of God's presence. But then in verse 5, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Verse 9, the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. See, what he says to Joshua is that 
I don't want you to be overcome with circumstances. I don't want you to be, to be in awe of fear because I'm not some distant deity that doesn't understand what you're going through. I'm not so far away that you can't come to me. I'm not so far away that you can't lean on me and rely on me. He says, no, I am with you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And so it was with the Old Testament saint. So it was for Joshua. Joshua, carry out my work under my promises, and you can go in strength and courage. But the the real question, though, is how do we apply that to 21st century New Testament saints? How can I be assured that Joshua chapter 1 is a guiding principle for me today? And what does that look like? Well, we've called this God's commission for Joshua. And I think, if you might think of that word commission, there's another commission that you'll find in Scripture. You'll find it in Matthew chapter 28. This is Jesus' great commission to his disciples. And we'll remember the context. You'll remember that this is post-resurrection. This is Jesus' last appearance on earth. You'll remember that he gathered his disciples together, and before his ascension, he gave them this commission. This commission was for the original disciples, but it applies to the church. It applied to the first century church, and it applied to us today. What were the disciples thinking and feeling when Jesus gave them the Great Commission? Let's put ourselves in their shoes. If you want to think about change, you want to feel about, think about anxiety, you want to think about uncertainty, these guys were living it. For three years, they had sat at the feet of Jesus, their rabbi. Their rabbi who was just brutally executed and murdered by the religious establishment. The same religious establishment that didn't have a whole lot of love for his disciples either. You'll remember that they had often been confused in Jesus' ministry about what his intentions were. When will the kingdom come? When will the kingdom come? They were constantly looking for Israel to be raised up again as a political power to, off, to throw off the Romans. Their entire world was upside down. And now this Jesus, for the last month or so, has been walking around again claiming to be resurrected from the dead. Well, what do you do with that? If that's not change in your life, I don't know what is. And so we find a group of disciples with their world turned upside down. And even after they saw Jesus, even after they touched Jesus, they were still dealing with fear and uncertainty. And this is what Jesus said to them. So Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Well, when I read this, and as I was praying about this, this this rings a lot like Joshua chapter 1. Rings a lot of the same principles. Jesus has the same word for his followers today that Yahweh had for Joshua. In the midst of change, in the midst of uncertainty, in the midst of fear, when your worlds are turned upside down, Jesus says, go, build my kingdom. It's the same command. 
Well, why is it the same command? Because it's part of God's eternal purposes. And they haven't changed in the last 3,000 years. They're still the same. Jesus says to his church, go build my kingdom. Now, we're not to build a physical kingdom the way Israel was. We're to build people. One thing you'll notice about this command, it says go, and you may have heard this from other preachers already. The idea behind this is not go now, like a one-time act. This is not something you do when you just send your missionaries across the other side of the world. And it's not focused just on evangelism either. We might think of this as making disciples as just getting people converted, right? If we can get them into the kingdom, we're good, we've done our job, and we can move on to the next person. Well, that's not what this is talking about at all. This speaks so intimately to our lives, the where we're sitting right now as moms and dads and as brothers and sisters, as employees and employers, as, as elders, as deacons. It, it speaks to us where we are. It says, Go. But what he's really saying is while you're going, while you're going about your daily lives, and we saw this happen in the first century church, as people went about their daily lives, the church spread like wildfire throughout the empire. People who were dedicated tent makers and dedicated mothers and dedicated teachers and dedicated artisans and dedicated merchants, they they didn't have seminary degrees. They weren't called to some special office. They just went, and as they were going, they shared the love of Jesus Christ by the way they lived and the way they witnessed. While they're going, go, build my kingdom. And what that speaks to us today is when we're down in the muck and mire of life, when we're dealing with change, and if you're a parent, you're aware of this, a parent is constantly dealing with change. You know, every stage that the child goes through in life I always thought I had this parenting thing licked, right? They're little. What do I have to figure out? I figure out how to bath them, when to bath them, when to feed them, how warm their food is, how cold their food is, all of these things, how many layers they needed on to keep them warm. And I still don't have that right. Every time you turn around, Andrew was sick this weekend. You want another blanket? You want a pillow? Should I turn the heat up? But I had to figure out all these things. And just when I thought I had it licked, he's walking. And now, now we're child-proofing the house and we're teaching him not to touch things and this and that and the other thing. And then I think I have that licked and all of a sudden he's in school. And now we have peer pressure and play dates. But then I realized elementary school is a long time and so I can get this thing licked and I can kick back and I can relax for a while. No, because then middle school comes around and hormones kick in. You want to talk about change. Robin and I are constantly reminding him we, we didn't get a rule book. We're figuring this out on our own with with prayer and lots of prayer and more prayer. You go to other parents who have been through it, and what do they tell you? Pray a lot. You guys really have to come up with some better advice than that. But it's true. And then when we think we have that lick, then they're driving and dating and looking for college and this and that and the other thing, and it's just change. And it's easy to be overwhelmed wherever you are in life, as a mom, as a dad, as a sister, as a brother, as an employee. It's easy to be overwhelmed and in awe of the change we have to deal with in life. And what Jesus says is, I acknowledge that about your life. I'm not going to remove it from you because it's going to make you stronger. But what you need to focus on is your business is building the kingdom and making disciples. That includes me making a disciple of myself. 
That includes you trying to make disciples of your children, of your coworkers, of your friends. Uh, this is not about evangelism. This is about sanctification. This is about growing each other and helping each other in our Christian walk. That's what we're to be about. So when I have to discipline my child and, and, I, and I'm fearful and I'm, I'm anxious about, about dealing with this situation, the first thought that has to come through my head is, how do I deal with this in such a way that I help build him as a disciple of Jesus Christ? When the car breaks down and I have to deal with my mechanic and I'm frustrated and I'm anxious, how do, I, how do I influence this mechanic for Jesus Christ? Because that's part of God's eternal purposes. And then Jesus goes on to say, you can walk in strength and courage when you go understanding my promises. Now where did I get that from this? Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. That's the first thing he says is to his disciples. Why was it important for them to know that? Because Jesus has been spending three years making totally outlandish promises. First of all, he said, I'm God. Then he said, my kingdom has arrived. And it's going to be built until my return. And then he says things like, I know all of my sheep from all generations, from all people groups, from all languages, and I will not lose a single one of them. And then he says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. He says, you will be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria to the other ends of the earth. Jesus makes some crazy, wild statements in the New Testament. Why can we stand on those promises? Because all authority and on heaven and earth, has been given to Jesus Christ. And he's now seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for all of us who are down here dealing with change. Then Jesus goes on to say, you can go in strength and courage when you walk in my law. Same thing. What is discipleship? My discipleship, your discipleship, people who aren't even saved, what's their discipleship yet going to look like? teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Jesus had been giving them the law. He had been teaching them, instructing them. Now we have it in written form in the Gospels and then in the epistles. He said, look at my written law. It's going to be your guide. I've given it to you. Walk in it. That's what discipleship is. And if we go back to the principle in Joshua, how do we deal with changing circumstances in life? We want to act wisely. That's meditating on his law day and night. It's not just a spiritual exercise that we do so that we can come and talk theology at book club or in discovery class. That's not all what it's for. What it's for is to make us enriched and instructed so that we can make the decisions in life where we act wisely for his purposes. Then Jesus says, you can go into the security of my presence. Just like he said to Joshua, I'm with you always to the end of the age. You know, the next time we see Jesus in the New Testament is the first chapter of Revelation. Go back and read that when you have a chance. We picture Jesus, yes, it's apocalyptic language. Yes, it's, it's, very, it's, 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 it's metaphorical language. But Jesus Christ, the resurrected Savior, pictures himself as walking amongst the lampstands. And the lampstands represent the churches. What Jesus Christ wants us to see about him is that I still walk in your presence. I've given you the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. God himself has come to dwell within you, my people. And you can be, you don't have to be in awe 
of fear. You don't have to be in all of change. You, you don't have to let it crush you. I want you to be in all of me. Go back and read Revelation 1. You have to do it this week, please. Just be in awe of Jesus Christ, the glorified Savior, and realize that he walks amongst his people. He is not distant. He will never leave us. He will not forsake us. And so as we come to that, what I've been mulling over this week in the last few weeks, and yeah, this was meant to be kind of a post-election sermon a few months ago when I, when I was asked to preach, but it got me thinking about change. It got me thinking about how we deal with these things in life and how we respond and made me start to think about what, what's the church's voice in all of this? You know, the church has largely lost its voice in our culture. We don't speak with the trustworthiness and the authority that the church may once have done in culture. And I started to wonder why. Why doesn't the church have a voice that stands up and says, we can address these things in our culture. We can address these issues of marriage. We can address these issues of hate. We can address these issues of discrimination. We can address these issues of fear. Why aren't we more effective? And I think it's because God's people, including myself, have too often forgotten to be strong and courageous in the midst of a changing world. We've forgotten to be strong and courageous. We've forgotten that God's promises are eternal and they stand firm. His kingdom will be built. We've forgotten that our business is people and not politics. We've forgotten that we have a sure written word that fully equips us for every good work. And we have the presence of God himself never to abandon us regardless of our changing circumstances. So the answer to change is, don't be in all of it. Be, a, be in all of this amazing God that came and chose to walk among us and ever since has never left us. The God that, that has eternal purposes that we can participate in and be assured of success. I'll leave you with, I can't get out without a Spurgeon quote. I got to give you a little bit from my hero here. He pictured the church as a sailing ship. This is what he says. The vessel of the church can never be wrecked. She rocks and reels in the mad tempest, but she's sound from stem to stern. And her pilot steers her with a hand omnipotently wise. Her bow is in the wave, but she divides the sea and she shakes off the mountainous billows as a lion shakes the dew off its mane. Fiercer storms than those of the present have beat upon her. And yet she's kept her head to the wind. And in the very teeth of hell's tremendous tempest, she's plowed her glorious way. And so she will, till she reaches her appointed haven. We're a part of that ship. We're going to reach our appointed haven. The pilot is steering. Be in all of him and not in all of change. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, your word has instructed us this morning. The Holy Spirit has empowered us to understand. Now I pray, Lord, that the Holy Spirit would empower each of us to walk the way you've asked us to walk. Father, I admit that when I face change, I feel anxiety and fear. I feel confusion. 
And too often I forget that my business is to make disciples of all nations and that I have the God of heaven standing behind me to ensure success. I pray that for this church, Father, the Grace Community Church, would be a beacon of light in a world of change and that that light would be clearly demonstrated to be the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, again for your written word that instructs us and helps us to act wisely. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.